Welcome to Crashing the War Party. We are broadcasting during the week of the State of the Union, and I feel like I've lived through a million State of the Union speeches in my time covering politics, and geez, they never get better. Here's one. What is the State of the Union? Not good. We have toxic, fracturing, partisan politics tearing at the fabric of the country at home, and we're waging a proxy war against our old nemesis, Russia, while saber-rattling at another great power, China, at the same time. And we're still fussing around the Middle East, playing war games with Israel to show who's boss with Iran. What could possibly go wrong? A lot, as they say, which we try to break down on this show every week. In the next segment, we'll be talking with Miranda Preeb, director of the Center for Analysis of U.S. Grand Strategy, about her new paper, which is entitled Avoiding a Long War in Ukraine, which is really, I feel, broken through the noise in Washington this week. But first... Let's talk about the story that had Twitter and all political media on absolute fire this week. Dan, I don't know if the wind was hotter in Washington from all the gas baggery or from the shoot down of the China spy balloon itself, but wow, you could have knocked me out Friday and Saturday from all the gaseous commentary. Can you set the table a little bit here on what happened and what repercussions there might be after Washington treated it like it was the first salvo in a war with Beijing? Uh, yeah, sure, Kelly. So, yeah, it, it has been uh, it's been a revealing few days uh, seeing how everybody's reacted to this. It's also been deeply embarrassing, I think, <laughs> for a lot of Americans to see how so much of our political and media class have handled. Uh, what what really should have been a, a, a manageable incident? I mean, in a sense, it's almost a, a non-event. Uh, yes, China's spying on us. They're using, and apparently they're using these high-altitude balloons to do it. And according now, according to the government, uh, they've done it before uh, a few times. Uh, and apparently, it wasn't detected at the time in the previous attempts. It was only, I guess, as a result of reviewing past UFO sightings, uh, that they determined that they had actually seen some of these things before. They didn't know what they were. Uh, and so now we you have the case of uh, this one that showed up in, over Alaskan airspace, I guess, uh, last week, and then gradually floated its way down, or being slightly guided. I guess it has some ability to be guided uh, in the direction that it goes, but it's, it's mostly being driven by the wind. Uh, and uh, it, it was loitering over certain parts uh, of our uh, uh, nuclear infrastructure in Montana uh, and, and up there where we have a lot of our ICBMs. And so, uh, obviously, the surveillance by foreign government is never good, uh, but it's also something we can pretty much take for granted that's going to happen. And so the, the, the pure hysteria that has uh, resulted from the, the recognition or the awareness that this is going on in, in the case of this balloon, has really been uh, very disheartening in, in many ways. Um, and of course, eventually, the, the Biden administration ended up ordering it shot down, and they shot it down uh, once it was over the Atlantic Ocean on the other side of the country. Um, so I think they handled that part correctly. They, they did it, the, the responsible thing in waiting for it uh, to be over water so that it wouldn't hurt anyone on the ground. And I guess they're saying that it will be more useful in recovering the wreckage if it crashes into the ocean than if it cracked on land. Uh, I, I don't know how much they'll actually be able to glean from it, but maybe they'll get something useful out of it. Um, what what uh, I think they did get wrong 
is the decision to cancel Blinken, or well, post, they say they are postponing Blinken's visit to Beijing, which is effectively a cancellation because they're not going to reschedule it anytime soon, no. uh, even though they should. Uh, I, I think calling off that meeting was a, was a serious mistake because incidents like these are exactly why we need to have high-level yeah. contacts and communications with the Chinese government. Uh, this incident shows better than anything that we don't have effective crisis management with the Chinese government. Uh, if something more serious were to happen, uh, I don't think we would be able to manage it successfully. And so we have to look at that very carefully. Uh, Sahil Shah wrote a really good piece, I think, in Foreign Policy just a, a day or two ago, uh, laying out why we need to work harder uh, on communicating with China and, and establishing effective crisis management mechanisms, and also start talking to them about uh, the, the question of, of arms control, because right now there's there's no arms control mechanism governing U.S. and Chinese arsenals, uh, in a, if there are any bilateral agreement or anything else. And so that's something that needs to be, that, that conversation needs to be started in earnest. And of course, I know the Chinese government has been very reluctant to talk about arms control because their arsenal is much smaller than ours. And so there, there needs to be some some creative diplomacy started to to try to break through on that issue. Because as as this rivalry intensifies, as it seems sure to do, uh, that's that's exactly one of the areas where we need to have more communication and more cooperation than we've had, uh, so that these things don't spin out of control. Uh, it's it's been very disturbing to see how many people are so eager to demagogue this issue and, and make it into some sort of failure on Biden's part when, as far as I can tell, Biden didn't do anything wrong in this situation. They identified the problem, he ordered it shot down, and then once it was safe to do it, they shot it down. And, and everything that people have been saying about it uh, to, to try to, to bash Biden with this, have just shown themselves to be really sort of petty and, and and unserious when it comes to anything related to foreign policy. Um, so I, I, I'm i discouraged that it's it's going to mess up the, the possible thaw in U.S.-Chinese relations, and uh, and that's going to be a bigger problem down the road. Yeah, and I feel like U.S.-China policy has been schizophrenic for some time. It was during the Trump administration. I think in hindsight, everybody just assumes that Trump was a big hawk on China, particularly because he started a trade war with China. But there was always this push and pull. And I think that it was because he had different constituencies he was trying to please. On the one hand, he had Sheldon Adelson and other business-minded you know, donors on one shoulder wanting to keep trade open with China, keep relations fairly friendly with China. Um, and then on the other side, you had the Pompeos and the saber rattlers who saw and see China as a military threat. And so he seemed to go back and forth from this approach in which he wanted to see China as a rival, but consistently open to talking with them and not getting into a war. And on the other side, constantly throwing his weight around and threatening them and then calling COVID, you know, the, the you know, the 
the, what, what was he calling it? The, the China flu or the, I, the Wuhan China flu. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it was a constant push and pull. And I feel like we're seeing this on another level in the Biden administration. We hear from certain quarters that the Biden administration does not want to escalate tensions with China, that it is open to talking and seeing areas where they do have cooperation, but being mindful that there is this um, challenge of competition, whether it be trade or military, but that they're open to talking. And that's what led to the plans for Blinken's trip this month. But on the other hand, there has been all of this talk about Taiwan and defending Taiwan. And you see the national security strategy as conveying China as, you know, the biggest threat to the United States, national security threat to the United States, along with Russia. And then you have Congress. And Congress, this is a bipartisan issue. They want on the most part, to be tough on China. And they want the administration to reflect that. And they just, what was it, a week or so ago that they established this new task force on China competition, which included folks on both sides of the aisle who messaged that they saw this particular panel as an opportunity to beat back the China threat, whether it be in the competition on trade or with the military. And they have been drowning out the more diplomatic voices who have been warning against escalating, who have been warning against anti-China rhetoric and what that what, what repercussions could come from that. So I feel like that there is a, a similar push and pull in this administration. And I would have been happy to see Biden say, yeah, we're going to shoot this thing down and then we're going to move on and we're going to continue to have this particular visit with Blinken and his counterpart because we see that ultimately as more important than this, than, than this incident and uh, for the long-term relationship, we need to do this. But he didn't. He seemed to cave from those forces that he probably thought were going to call him weak on China if he didn't cancel the trip. Yeah, well, and, and I, I understand that he's concerned about that. But, I mean, he's, he's already being called weak anyway. Yeah. Because, because one of the things you can always guarantee with, with hardline critics is that whatever you do, uh, you didn't do it early enough or you didn't do it decisively enough or you didn't do it. Uh, in a way that would satisfy them anyway. So, you, you, if you're Biden, you, you simply have to to tune those people out and and stop worrying about guarding your flank against them because they'll they'll always keep moving farther to, to farther extremes to to get around you and and keep attacking you in the same way no matter what you do. And so that try, trying to to placate them or to to neutralize those criticisms is a waste of time and it it takes you in the wrong direction from where you want to go i think uh, what what i think we've seen clearly from this incident is that the the whole framing of the us china relationship in terms of rivalry and great power competition makes our domestic politics surrounding this issue extremely toxic and extremely stupid uh, we we do not have Anything like an intelligent debate over China policy, it is a, a constant bidding war of trying to see who can be more demonstratively obnoxious uh, about this issue. 
And in in that bidding war, hardliners will always end up winning because they can always go farther than you're willing to go. And so you you set yourself up for failure if you don't if you're not a hardliner uh, by playing that game. And uh, and if we can't handle something as relatively minor as this balloon episode without losing our minds, then I, I'm really concerned about what happens if we should have uh, a genuine incident between our militaries in the South China Sea or the Taiwan Strait, or if there's some incident involving Taiwan. Uh, I, I don't trust that we could actually de-escalate the situation successfully because all of the incentives and pressures uh, in our political culture right now are going in the wrong direction. Right. And God knows what the uh, 2024 presidential election will be like when you have a Republican primary. I, d- I have no idea how Trump will handle the issue because in recent days he's come out and accused his Republican rivals of being warmongers. And it is obvious that Trump is going to take up the restraint mantle as a Republican presidential candidate. But I I have no idea how he'll be on China. I do know how Nikki Haley will be on China and uh, Mike Pompeo and Chris Christie, if he runs and, and any others. And I think that they will outdo or try to outdo each other on how tough they can be on China and ratcheting up the uh, China threat. And on the Democratic side, I, I just don't I, I, I feel like they ha- they they have this baggage going back decades in which they cannot be perceived as weak on anything foreign policy wise. So they, too, tend to outdo them, try to outdo each other on how tough they can be, particularly on China. And so I feel like the rhetoric is just getting ratcheted up. The media has not been helpful. Yes, they're all talking about how embarrassing it was, um, the coverage over Balloon Gate, but they were right there with it, whipping it up at the time. Right, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, that's that's why I often say the defensive crowd on foreign policy is ultimately self-defeating because you, you end up letting the, the most hardline elements define the terms of the debate, uh, in, in which case uh, we all lose. Uh, and I, I would just add that we we have a very narrow window for fixing this problem because Kevin McCarthy is planning to go to – he wants to go to Taiwan in the spring. Uh, if that should happen, any chance of a U.S.-China thaw, I think, is out the window, and, and we can just forget about it for the rest of Biden's presidency. And so I, I hope that somebody prevails on him not to go – uh, because otherwise I, I don't see how we uh, repair the damage that's already been done. Next up, I'd like to introduce Miranda Preeb to the show. Miranda is the director of the Center for Analysis of U.S. Grand Strategy at the RAND Corporation. And besides grand strategy, she conducts research on the effects of U.S. military overseas, military doctrine, deterrence, history of U.S. military policy and defense budgets, among a host of other related issues. She received her Ph.D. in political science from MIT and her master's from Princeton. So is, she is what we call a very smart person with the added bonus of working on restraint issues for RAND. So thank you, Miranda, for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. 
Well, thanks for being here. I'm really looking forward to talking about your paper that you wrote with your colleague, Sam Cherup, which is entitled Avoiding a Long War in Ukraine, in which you write, the costs and risks of a long war in Ukraine are significant and outweigh the possible benefits of such a trajectory for the United States. Although Washington cannot by itself determine the war's duration, it can take steps that make an eventual negotiated end to the conflict more likely. I have to say this report got a ton of attention, not only because it is very detailed in its analysis and that you offer concrete, realistic measures for helping bring the war to an end, but because it's coming from RAND, which I think for better or worse, people associate with the side of the foreign policy establishment that bolsters conventional thinking as a government contractor. Can you tell us a little bit about how RAND came to these conclusions and give us a few highlights in the paper you think are getting the most attention or should be getting the most attention? Sure. Well, you know, we always uh, try to remind people that RAND does objective nonpartisan research, but of course, a lot of our research is for the Department of Defense, which is where some people expect us to lead to, you know, particular findings um, from our research. Um, But we've seen um, throughout the war that there's been a very healthy internal debate within RAND among RAND researchers about the right policy and strategy and all of these arguments are based on our different perspectives, based on our own research. So I see it as a really healthy thing that um, you have different views coming out of RAND. I think it shows that, you know, we aren't just um, kind of developing research that leads to a particular outcome, but that, you know, we're all using our expertise and our analysis to try to help the United States grapple with these really uh, difficult issues. So, um the as far as your question about the highlights, you know, I think of the report as having two really big takeaways. And I think your the quote at the beginning really highlighted it. And the first is that the US has a strong interest in avoiding a long war. And this is something that's often downplayed. We see that the administration has focused a lot on seeing US interests in the war coming out of helping Ukraine try to regain uh, some of its lost territory. And while the U.S. certainly has some interest in that regard, it's not the only aspect of the war that affects us. And so what Sam and I tried to do was to step back a little and say, what are all the pieces of the way the war unfolds uh, that the U.S. should think about and and really kind of more carefully examine all those dimensions, not just focus on how much territory Ukraine retakes. So this, and so that led us to really focus on, um, the, the trade-offs involved in a long war. Some of the, some of the examples of downsides of a long war that we try to highlight in the report include an elevated risk of nuclear use or a wider war continuing as long as conflict, uh, is happening on the ground. The war also diverts resources away from other U.S. priorities, uh, at home as well as abroad. And, you know, of course, there's a humanitarian dimension as well. There's uh, Ukrainian suffering as long as the war goes on. And there's global suffering from high energy prices and food prices. So that first takeaway is really about um, a long war having a lot of costs and risks for the United States. And then the second is really that the U.S. has options for how to affect this war, that there really are ways that the United States could try to incentivize the parties to try to negotiate. So those are the two big takeaways from the project. 
Now, I know your paper and one of the best things about it is your paper highlights four policy instruments that the United States could use to mitigate um, these impediments to ending the war. Um, Clarifying plans for future support to Ukraine, making commitments to Ukraine security, issuing assurances regarding the country's neutrality and setting conditions for sanctions relief for Russia. I know we can't go into a huge amount of detail, but can you go through each and just maybe talk briefly uh, about them to give the audience a sense of, of, of what that would entail, what that what each of those might look like in practice? Sure. I think it's helpful to step back a little bit and explain briefly why um, why it is that we make those recommendations. And in broad terms, what we argue in the paper is that, you know, there's lots of reasons why the parties haven't come to the negotiating table yet. And uh, so we try to think about, are any of those reasons um, kind of impediments to negotiations that the United States can affect? And we came down on, on the view that there are sort of two broad categories of things that are preventing uh, the war from coming to the negotiating table. The first is that um, the parties seem to have both be optimistic that they can gain more by fighting. And the other is that both sides are kind of pessimistic about how good peace will be and whether peace will last if they were to come to an agreement. So those four options that you listed are really trying to get at that pessimism about peace and trying to reverse that to make the parties more optimistic. So if we can uh, give uh, Russia, for example, a pathway to sanctions relief, perhaps they can see peace as more desirable. Similarly, if we make commitments to Ukraine security, they might be more confident that peace will last. Um, and so the, each of those four pieces are trying to get at the, um, the optimism and pessimism we see driving uh, the current conflict. How, how has the response been uh, to the paper and the fact that you are literally laying out measures that you think would help you know, mitigate the impediments that you spoke of? Um, has, been, has it been re- positive, I, I would say, in, in official Washington? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, not everyone's going to agree with exactly how we weigh the costs and benefits uh, of a long war, as well as, you know, some of the other issues that we go into in the paper. But what I think that we've gotten a really positive response about has been just laying it out so systematically. There's just so many, there's so much noise, uh, so many arguments about, um, you know, the U.S. should do this and the U.S. should do that, um, that nobody's sort of synthesized those arguments and kind of weighed them and said, you know, some of these things are more important than others. And so um, even those that kind of disagree with the way we weight some of the the aspects um, have been very appreciative of just the systematic approach that then they can weigh things in their own way and think through it in that sort of same structure, but give it their own uh, considerations. Definitely. And uh, thanks, uh, Miranda, for coming on the show. We appreciate having you here. Uh, one of the things that I really liked about the paper was your discussion of uh, sanctions relief and then problems related to sanctions relief. Uh, well, one of the points that you make is that the U.S. and its allies have something of a credible commitment problem when it comes to offering sanctions relief uh, because they haven't really spelled out what conditions would apply for getting that relief. Uh, and also because of the U.S. track record in, in actually providing sanctions relief, uh, to those states that it has targeted in the past. Um, 
how does it apply in this case and why is it one of the obstacles to peace uh, in your view? So I think, you know, what the sanctions relief piece is really getting at is that this piece is probably not a bilateral piece. This is not going to only come from changes um, on the Ukrainian side or on the Russian side, that this war is a complicated war driven by a lot of fears and concerns um, and motivations on all sides. And so to the extent that Russia sees peace as defined by continued Western hostility and continued um, sanctions, you know, that, that isn't really helping uh, make peace look better. And so really you need some kind of potentially some kind of change in the West to, to shape that outcome, that it's not just a bilateral change between uh, the Ukraine and Russia. So I think we're trying to highlight that there's a role for the West in helping peace become more attractive. Sure. And uh, one of the other points that and Kelly mentioned this in um, summary, uh, possibly the thorniest problem for the U.S. is finding a way to balance security assurances for Ukraine with an agreement that would confirm Ukraine's post-war neutrality. Uh, the, the more that we reassure the Russians that Ukraine will stay neutral, the, the more insecure Ukraine is likely to feel, right? and, and vice versa. So uh, how does the U.S. strike the right balance so that both belligerents would be satisfied with the, the final arrangement? Yeah, so I think, you know, Sam and I might have different views on on this. So I, I'll speak just for myself here, which is that I don't really see how the how we can address one without the other. As you said, um, if we were to just if the West is to just make security commitments to Ukraine um, without any kind of steps towards neutrality for Russia, then Russia walks away. You know, what kind of deal? Uh, how does that make an attractive deal um, for Russia to sign on to? And so. Uh, on the other side of the coin, if the United States were to push Ukraine to accept neutrality, then, you know, Ukraine would walk away. You know, that isn't an attractive deal for them. Um, so we, in my view, uh, these two pieces really have to come together. Um, and th- this is an idea, you know, wasn't something original that Sam and I came up with. This is something that the parties discussed uh, in the Istanbul communique earlier in the war. And so... You know, it appears to be uh, at least something the parties were willing to discuss. And um, I think the question, the thornier problem is what kind of commitments to Ukraine the West is comfortable making. Uh, The West has been pretty clear that we're not going to make a NATO-like commitment to Ukraine. So will something less than that be enough to be to make peace attractive uh, for the Ukrainians? And that that is sort of the one of the the core issues at the heart of the conflict since the, those uh, questions of, of security commitments to Ukraine are one, one of the things that Russia has complained about and also mm-hmm. one of the things that, that the U.S. and its allies have been uh, very resistant to to moving on or, or budging from uh, up till now. Uh, and one, one of the other aspects or one of the other uh, parts of a, a possible solution uh, that you outline in the paper uh, is setting conditions on military assistance to Ukraine and how that might uh, be used to to encourage an earlier end to the war. Uh, and I think, as as you acknowledge, this is going to be one of the hardest things to sell, uh, both in Washington and in Allied capitals. Uh, but it, it, as I read it, it makes sense that the U.S. should be straight with the Ukrainian government that our interests and theirs are not identical, and that our support is not limitless, uh, and, and that we're going to pursue our interests as well. Uh, in, in trying to find a settlement. Uh, what, what are the options for conditioning assistance that you consider in the paper 
How, how might that work? Yeah, as you, I mean, as you mentioned, this is a very difficult topic, and it's been a taboo topic in a lot of ways in the discussion in Washington about ending the war. Um, you know, we we thought a little bit about um, how you might soften a policy like that to make it more politically pal- palatable. And, you know, one option we talk about in the paper is trying to pair some limits on uh, wartime aid. Maybe, maybe instead of saying you're going to cut off aid, you say we're going to level out aid. It's really not going to keep increasing on the trajectory that it's been on over the course of the war. Another option might be pairing uh, kind of a leveling off of aid or a decrease in aid with uh, promises of bigger um, packages in peacetime. So again, trying to shift that balance between, you know, what benefits you can gain from continuing to fight versus what benefits you can gain um, from from accepting peace on some kind of terms, even if they're not um, ideal. So, Miranda, I know that we are almost at the one-year mark of the Russian invasion. I think it's February 24th. Um, You've been doing a hell of a lot of work on this issue all year round. Um, wonder what, is there anything that you've learned personally? I mean, given that your background um, in military issues, deterrence, uh, overseas commitments, what, are, what, what is the biggest takeaway that, that, that you have from the West's response to the invasion? And I don't want you to have to employ a crystal ball, but I mean, in terms of what you see, maybe six months going forward, um, that maybe that you can share with the audience. Well, I think the biggest surprise for me and for most people in the war has been, you know, the lack of Russian military capability compared to where we thought it was. Um, And that... I guess has not, it's not surprised me that, um, that hasn't changed the debate about the broader U.S. role in Europe. Uh, a lot of us, uh, were skeptical about Russian military power for a long time before the war, not to the extent that we've, we've seen play out. And, and we saw that as an argument that the United States could potentially do less in Europe and, and Europe could remain secure by coming together and employing their own capabilities. Um, and unfortunately, as even though the war has revealed that Russia's capabilities are even more limited than we thought, we haven't seen a movement um, in the direction of, of saying, OK, maybe this is an argument uh, that the United States can shift resources uh, out of Europe in the long term once this this war is over. Um, so, you know, that's a discussion that I'd like to see, but uh, I guess I'm not surprised hasn't happened. We've instead seen a doubling down on the importance of the U.S. role in NATO and in uh, an increase in continued increase in forward military presence. So, you know, in the in months ahead, I hope that there is a step back um, and a reflection on what this means for grand strategy after the war. But we haven't seen that yet. I know that you and your colleagues are working on a project that examines restraint as a foreign policy worldview on both the left and the right of the spectrum. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why your team is interested in this and sure. maybe give, give us a little teaser into uh, <laughs> what you're finding? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, my center at RAND has been trying to examine the range of alternative grand strategies that are out there. And in a, in a short version, grand strategy is about the U.S. approach to the world. It's about the big 
the answers to big questions about who the threats are and and who our allies are and, and how we um, should approach the world. So we have been working on a project taking stock of the different reasons that people decide that they'd like to see a less militarized approach to the world. And so we've been examining realist arguments that come from academia, um, conservative arguments for why the U.S. should adopt a more a less militarized approach to the world, progressive arguments, as well as libertarian. And we've been trying to understand how what those different arguments are, um, what that means in terms of areas these groups agree about and disagree about. And one of the big takeaways that we're finding is that the rise of China is going to be a real stress on this um, on this group of people who have, you know, come together on issues like ending endless wars, but maybe are going to have a harder time coming to agreement on how to approach China. We find that some of these groups um, are going to tend to want a less restrained approach to China. And so may, um, you know, maybe shifting as the, as the world changes. So that's a little bit of what we're working on there. Sounds fascinating. And I'm really excited to see, um, you know, the final, the final paper or brief on that. And you mentioned China. We talked about that in the first segment. Um, are you concerned um, as a grand strategist that the, that they the Biden administration, Washington writ large, is is going to attempt to um, you know wage to a two front war um, after all we've seen in in Washington this week with the balloon gate and all the the congressional rhetoric on China. Is there is there real concern that that we might be headed towards more of a a, a military uh, confrontation with China? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's sort of two concerns uh, in what you just said that we should unpack. I mean, one is that we are not really um, fully prioritizing as much as I think we need to. Um, we still see the U.S. needing to have a major role in several regions, less so than in the past in the Middle East, but still an active role, military role in the Middle East, as well as in Europe and the Indo-Pacific. And the administration strategies are highlighting the need to shift to the Pacific, um, but we're seeing that it's hard for the American people um, and the administration to uh, to kind of step out of that role as the lead security provider in Europe. Um, and so I think, you know, after the war, this is a good time to have a reflection and a conversation about that. So I think that's one issue is about, you know, how we're prioritizing the different regions. Um, and the second is um, kind of the framing of our relationship uh, with China uh, as a purely competitive relationship. Um, the administration's national security strategy did appropriately note that there are important um, areas for cooperation with China. And I hope that they continue to, to act on that um, because uh, just a purely competitive mindset where competition becomes the end rather than the means for achieving U.S. Aims, I think, is a really counterproductive strategy that's going to miss opportunities for cooperation on shared challenges like climate change, but also put us on, um, you know, a, a heightened military stance in the Pacific on both sides and, and lead to a higher risk of conflict and crises. Well, thank you so much. We've, we've run out of time, but I hope you'll come back, uh, particularly when you come out with your restraint findings and, you know, we can talk more about Ukraine and whether or not Washington is actually listening to all the smart things that you and Sam have been putting out there. Well, thanks so much. This was a great conversation. 
Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.